NSN Daily. Chris Murray, Anthony Resnick, uh, director behind the scenes. I'm Brian Samudio. Barracuda Championship tees off today up at Old Greenwood, just outside, just this side of Truckee. Yeah, we're going to talk with uh, uh, one of the guys who was in contention last year. And uh, one of the, I don't know, he's kind of a local. He's a regional guy, Lanto Griffin, who uh, made your list of guys to kind of watch this week. Uh, we'll talk to them about uh, playing in the tournament. Uh, the ACC has made plans about how they're going to have a have a, con not a conference, but non-conference is going to be thrown to the wayside and Notre Dame. So that we're going to talk about that mix. Uh, continue with Chris's uh, most important and uh, top 25 players of the Nevada roster. And uh, we're going to get into better know about with Joe Kelly about this punishment and also the uh, top 21 meals, iconic meals, now that the awful, awful is uh, going away at the dodo. But um, Chris, uh, this tournament starting this week, Shannon Kelly's been up there and, and we'll be covering this for us as the week continues uh you put out a list of uh of guys that are you know with their with their odds but um you know there's there's a few on this list that really kind of catch my eye and there's a couple of big names yeah i mean there are a couple of unlv alums you have ryan moore you have charlie hoffman there's a boise state alum in uh, troy Merritt as well who was the runner-up in last year's event uh as you mentioned i did uh, have lanto griffin in there uh largely because his name is very close to lando calrissian and we've been watching star wars of late so that's what drew me to the name originally but actually digging in a little bit more i mean he should be a top contender in the field this uh week uh, 35 to 1 odds, so fairly long odds, but he's 10th in the FedEx Cup ranking. So, uh, you know, that's a really, really high number. He's basically been the 10th best player on tour this year in terms of money won. Um, he won the Houston Open earlier this season. He's been struggling a little bit of late, though. He's been cut in five of his last 12 starts with only one top 20 finish. He started the season really, really strong. Um, as you mentioned, from Lake Shasta, California, so uh, pretty regionally close. So I'm sure he, uh, he'll, he'll have some family uh, wherever he's staying for this weekend, and I'm sure he'd love to make the cut. But uh, a name that kind of popped up to me just because of the name at the start, but uh, clearly been playing some pretty good golf during this PGA Tour season. Yeah, you mentioned Troy Merritt, who was right in the middle of it until the end there against Colin Morikawa uh, last year. Uh, ends up being the runner-up uh, at last year's Barracuda. Then again, you know, that doesn't mean a whole lot because this is a brand-new course. It's a different style course. Yeah, like you said, he is the Boise State alum, a pair of PGA Tour wins. And, yeah, made 11 of 18 cuts this year. So Troy Merritt at 40-1 to 1, that might be a pretty good um, value pick if you're a – if you're a betting person, Shannon Kelly got to catch up with, with Troy and Lanto after some practice rounds and talk about this year's Barracuda Championship. Here's that. What do you think is going to be the most challenging part of just playing this course? Well, with all mountain courses, you know, when we're this high in, in the summertime, we, uh, we get that afternoon wind and we get the gusty winds, you know, around here. So uh, keeping the ball up in the air and getting to go the right distance, that was always the problem over at, uh, at Montreux for myself. So. Um, I'm thinking that might be the issue again uh, this year in the afternoons. You came up a little bit short last year. You almost had it there on the last day. Uh, what would it mean to take home the trophy this year? Oh, I mean, anytime you get a chance to win, it's it's great. But uh, yeah, when when you don't do anything wrong and you get beat at the end by uh, by a, a rookie that makes a bunch of birdies, uh, a very good rookie at that, Colin Morikawa. Uh, he he won the tournament fair and square last year. So uh, if we can just play the same good golf and, and have a chance to win on Sunday, that'd be great. And if we can handle ourselves like we did last year. Hopefully it works out this year. What excites you about just being back at the Barracuda Championship? I think it's stable for the, the format. It's just it's a little different. So it'd be kind of like playing match play. Just we kind of get in the, in the routine of playing stroke play every week and then be able to come here and if I hit a ball OB, I can just go to the next hole and take my minus three and, and be good. No, but uh, 
it, it's different. So it's kind of exciting, you know. So it's you're not so worried about what your score is. You're trying to make as many points as you can, right? So it's uh, on a golf course like this where the par fives are reachable and there's some reachable par fours. It's it's going to be exciting. So um, I'm I'm happy to be be back in Truckee. Is there anything that maybe surprises you a little bit about this course versus Montro? They feel pretty similar to me, honestly. Um, you know, this one seemed a little, I've, I've heard it was a little easier, but it, this morning it didn't feel, you know, that much easier to me. But uh, I guess that was two or th two years ago that I played at Montreux. So, and I only played it one year, but I really liked that course. And uh, I was a little bummed they moved it, but then after playing today, I'm, I, I really like Old Greenwood too. So I'd, I'd say they're pretty similar in difficulty and, and the beauty is pretty similar too. So this one might be a little easier to walk too. So at elevation, it might be a little bit easier. Yeah, the conditions look like they're going to be perfect up there, Chris. I mean, obviously nobody's been playing or if there have been guys playing it, it's been, uh, you know, a, a very sh uh, small amount of men and women that have been playing this golf course. Ryan Moore to me, yeah, is, is an intriguing pick at 18 to one. I've never been somebody that likes picking the favorite. You know, but uh, yeah, twenty-five or eighteen to one, he is the uh, he is the the favorite in this field. And five PGA Tour wins, twelfth um, um, place finish at the 3M Open last week. So he might be primed to to come in and, and, and win this thing. But uh, it's a different type of golf course. And if you've played in this tournament before, um, I think the only way you have an advantage is if you've played stable per format and you understand mm -hmm. it. Yeah, I think that's the most interesting aspect of the tournament is just uses a different scoring system than literally every uh, tournament uh, during the rest of the season. And I think it really helps the long hitters. It really helps guys who can go out there uh, and shoot for eagles and birdies because a birdie is much better uh, than a bogey. Uh, usually on your regular tour, a birdie and a bogey offset each other, but not in this. Uh, I actually went back and looked at a lot of the years, and there are multiple years when the person who actually shot the best uh, score to par didn't have in the event would actually finish second or third and that has to be a frustrating feeling for them uh, but it just shows you that high risk low reward on a lot of these uh, holes um, because if you can go out there and get an eagle you're helping yourself so much uh, with the scoring system so I think one interesting guy to watch uh, this week is Scott Stallings he's a 50 to 1 odds guy but he's second on the PGA Tour uh, in Eagles this year and I think that helps a lot in the Stableford system he's a really good long driver of the ball obviously at elevation you're going to be hitting the ball even further and I think uh, as we've mentioned just because you've had success uh, in the Barracuda before at Montreux doesn't help because you're on a new course but I think just knowing your yardage marks and how far your ball is going to travel by playing in this tournament before is helpful because they don't play at elevation very often and that's a massive massive change when you're hitting at 6,000 feet as opposed to sea level. So Scott Stallings, one guy to look out for. He, he's been solid this year. He's made six straight cuts, but he only has one top 15 finish uh, this season. So he hasn't really competed uh, at the top very often, but he has been making cuts. And, uh, you know, he has the kind of game that I think would fit well with this scoring system and at this elevation. I think two things here. I think it's going to be mentality and practice. If you've been able to play this course a few times, get your practice rounds in. Get the lay of the land and go, okay, this is what I need to hit from here. This is how we're going to attack this hole. And mindset, mentality. These guys, the casual golf fan might not think that golfers are risk takers or gamblers or gunslingers. Most of them are going to love this. I think it, me as a golfer, and I'm a very, very amateur, amateur golfer, I would love this. It's like, you know, challenge myself because the risk reward factor is so much more weighing in the reward factor side of it granted don't hit it over a gorge if you know you can, if you got to hit 300 and you can you know you might be able to do it if you really sting it 
But I think they're going to have a lot of fun with this. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm looking forward to the event. I wish that I could cover it. Media is very limited. We are sending Shannon Kelly, and she's working her tail off up there, but of coverage of this all week long on News 4, our sister stations, Fox 11, and, of course, NevadaSportsNet.com. Coming up next here on NSN Daily, we'll talk a little college football as the ACC makes a bold move along with SEC making a little bit of a move, and how is this going to move the Mountain West when it comes to scheduling this season? NSN Daily uh, rolling along here on your Thursday. Uh, college football making some uh, some bold announcements, Chris, on Thursday. The ACC uh, basically saying, yep, we're going to do uh, our conference schedule plus Notre Dame. And they're going to play an 11-game schedule along with the Irish. And at the end, uh, they're going to have their championship, and that's going to be it. So, I mean, we're starting to see the dominoes fall, and we expected them with the big conference. I expected the SEC to be the big the big dog that was going to lead the way here, but the ACC saying, hey, we're going to do this first. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to me because you're playing 11 games instead of 12 games. So what are you really accomplishing? Yeah, I mean, is the virus not going to hit your players because it's a conference game rather than a non-conference game? I mean, you're basically pushing back the season two weeks, incorporating Notre Dame into the ACC for one year as a temporary member and allowing them to potentially pay, play for an ACC championship. Um, I, I guess, you know, regional travel is a little bit easier, but the way I see this is basically conferences are trying to get out of these non-conference games against teams like Nevada because uh, a lot of these games cost them one $1.5 million and they're not going to have fans in the seats. So they're trying to figure out a way uh, to still play their games and get their TV money, but not owe some of these monies uh, to mid-major and group of five schools. Like you're going from 12 games to 11. It doesn't accomplish the goal of, uh, you know, trying to limit the schedule or push the schedule back. Uh, the SEC, like you said, hasn't made any final decision, but there were pretty heavy reports yesterday that they're going to conference uh, cancel their non-conference season and just play a 10-game conference season. That would really hurt Nevada, which, as we've mentioned, has a game against Arkansas, which is in the SEC on the books, for $1.5 million uh, in this September. So um, I could see that being a legal battle. I mean, if you're going to still play 10 games, you're really not canceling a game with cause uh, against a school like Nevada. So yeah. uh, you can see the Wolfpack trying to get that $1.5 million, even if that game is canceled. But uh, some dominoes are falling, but it still seems like it's going to be a pretty robust season. Uh, you know, even the Pac-12 and the Big Ten, which announced they're just doing conference games, they're still playing 10 conference games. So, uh, you know, they're going from 12 to 10. So, um, you know, Nevada, they're supposed to start fall camp tomorrow. So it'll be interesting to see whether they actually do that and, and whether they play UC Davis uh, in late uh, August. I mean, less than a month away from the start of the season. Um, but if they're not going to play games like at Arkansas or at USF, which are non-conference games that are going to pay them a lot of money, I don't see them having the money to necessarily turn around and pay U UTEP and UC Davis, which are scheduled to play at Mackey Stadium. So still a lot to be determined with uh, about 28 day days to go before the season starts. And I mean, we're not behind closed doors and I'm not making any of these decisions. I can speculate all I want until I'm blue in the face and into what I think a conference should do. But I could see a conference like the Mountain West, you know, make it regionally. I mean, it, forget about 12 games. Try and get six games in. Try and get eight games in. And work with a conference like the Big Sky. I mean, if you're the Mountain West, split your divisions up and say, okay, West Division, you're playing West Division. You know, Mountain Division playing Mountain Division. So suddenly you can bust all these games, bubble your team. Nobody's – and if you don't have any positive cases, bubble your team and bust to Fresno. Bubble your team and bust to San Jose. Have San Diego State bust to Reno. It's a long bus ride. It's fine. If you want to play football? Get realistic here. 
Um, work with the mountain, with with the big sky. Work with conferences that are close to you. Why why wouldn't Nevada say, all right, Sac State, you weren't on our schedule, but if you want to play, get on a bus and come to Reno. We'll we'll find a Saturday for you. UC Davis, you don't have any. All right, get on a bus and come to Reno. Or hey, we'll go to Sac State. We'll go play Sac State just to get a game in. And you can't tell me you wouldn't be able to sell that uh, to a television network. We are our. our our parent network, our base programming a stadium would be chomping at the bit to televise something like that. They would pay out the nose to televise a live football game. I know we here at Nevada Sportsnet, if we could afford what, what the royalties would be or what the, what the charge would be, we would pay it. So I, I think there could have been some different thinking. And I don't know if it was behind closed doors. Hey, okay, let's do Fresno, San Diego. We'll play these teams that are in our – we'll play UNLV. Uh, we'll play uh, San Jose, and we'll play Sac State and Davis. There's six games right there. You know, I mean, you're able to think differently and go, okay, let's put together a conference like that. But uh, uh, we'll see. I, I, like, I, like you said, I think we're going to have a ton of news in the next couple of days, maybe even later after this show is taped today. We may find more news out and uh, stick with us on the website, NevadaSportsNet.com, the latest of what's going on. Uh, Chris is going through his top 25 most important uh, players on the Nevada football roster. Should have seized it happen. Um, we're being very, very faithful. Uh, we'll talk about it later, but Chris and I both were talking before the show, why am I watching Major League Baseball right now and getting invested into a season that might not finish? The Phillies have shut down operations because of two positive cases among their staff. But uh, Henry Ikahihifo, one of the great names on the roster, sophomore tight end out of the Central Valley. This kid is a bulldozer, Chris. Yeah, you mentioned his weight had gone up on his bio online, listed at six foot one, two hundred and seventy pounds. So obviously, uh, a gigantic human being. And, and tight end is not usually in the air raid offense a uh, hot and heavy position that gets a lot of targets. Um, but Nevada kind of runs a different uh, air raid. They obviously like to run the ball with the power run game. So I think that's what makes more important this season. I easily could have gone with Reagan Roberson, who's been a terrific uh, walk-on from Douglas High, who earned a scholarship after his first year in the program, caught the game-winning touchdown against Arkansas State in the Arizona Bowl a couple of years ago. The reason I went with Henry is I think he has a little bit more pass-catching skills. He could, he could threaten you down the field a little bit more. And you really go back in Nevada history, the Wolfpacks had a ton of great tight ends. Uh, most recently, Zach Sudfeld before him, Virgil Green, both those guys made it to the NFL. I mean, you're talking about guys like Anthony Pudwell, uh, Adam Bishop, uh, Tony Mole before he became an offensive lineman made it to the NFL. So I think what Nevada's kind of been missing a little bit is that pass catching tight end who can catch you 25, 30 balls, maybe five or six touchdowns, be a very strong red zone threat. So uh, if there's one tight end on the roster who I think can turn into that this season, uh, it is Henry, and that's why I put him on the list. 6'1, 270. If you're a linebacker and you've got that coming across the middle, He's not going to stretch the field. I mean, that's just not his job. His job is going to be to run block and to get across the middle and to bulldoze over a linebacker. I imagine this guy catching like a seven-yard slant across the middle, knocking over a linebacker, and then, then suddenly you find a safety that, that wants nothing to do with this dump truck that's carrying the football. Uh, I, I see him as a great pass-catching weapon. I remember looking at his tape when uh, Nevada uh, snared him a couple of years ago. His brother, his older brother, is actually a morning reporter for our, our company in Fresno. And I gave him a call, and he goes, yep, he's a great kid. I love my brother. You're going to have so much fun with him. Uh, thank you so much. And, you know, it just sounds like he's a, maybe a better person off the field. One of those guys who in between the lines is pretty scary, but uh, outside the lines it sounds like he's a pretty good friend and teammate. But uh, if you want to check out 
Chris's rankings. Go to NevadaSportsNet.com as we get into uh, close to the uh, number 20 ranked player in uh, this year's Wolfpack football roster. Coming up next here on NSN Daily, Todd Kennedy, representative of Corbell uh, Champagne, is going to join us here on the show. Uh, talk about their partnership with the ACC moving forward and how they have the Celebrity Golf Tournament without fans this year, but still had fun. Welcome back into NSN Daily. Uh, the American Century Championship was a success once again this year, despite uh, having to do it in a much different way. We didn't see the fans. But one of our favorite events and favorite people to work with, uh, companies to work with, is, is Corbell, the celebrity spray-off. They do a media spray-off. Every year it's a different competition between uh, us on NSN and uh, Todd Kennedy joining us right now from uh, his, his really cool basement in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, Todd is the brand director for Brown Foreman. Uh, they, they handle Corbell. And uh, Todd, uh, how different was it this year when it came to Corbell and the ACC? Well, from a personal standpoint, it was extremely different, Brian. This was, uh, this was actually the first time I had not been there since 2004. Yeah. Uh, when we started our uh, Tahoe partnership with NBC, we've been a partner of NBC for, oh, well over 25 years now. Uh, they're the ones that got us involved out there. But, you know, uh, we've been talking since COVID started, uh, along with American Century, and everyone wanted, uh, wanted the match to go on. So, uh, as you can see, everybody pulled out all the stops and did everything they could to keep things going. So, we were... We were very pleased to still be part of it. Just wish we could have been there. That's it's a very different event. Tell everybody a little bit of the history of the company. So started in the 1880s by some uh, brothers from Czechoslovakia uh, in, yeah. in Sonoma County over here. Well, uh, I wasn't around then, but uh, <laughs> like I was. You know, it is, it, is a, uh, it is a very interesting story. I call it a, uh, a West Coast immigrant story. So it's literally three brothers, uh, Francis, Anton, and Joseph um, from Prague area. Uh, they escaped Europe. I always like to say that. Uh, they did, they did kind of get out under uh, some uncertain uh, uncertainties. They made it to New York. These were very three industrious young men who, who knew what they, they, they worked hard, knew how to make money. Uh, they... Uh, they, they learned how to make cigars in cigar boxes. And when the gold rush came around in California, they said, well, let's head west. And they, they did. Unfortunately, it took them a while to get there. So they, uh, they went by boat, which took three and a half years, uh, if you can believe it. Uh, they finally made it and lo and behold, the gold rush was over. So, uh, they uh, they went back to doing what they did best when that was making cigars. So uh, they they made enough money. They uh, bought the land where the winery is today, which is about 12, 13 miles west of Santa Rosa, right on the Russian River, right on River Road. It's about 350 acres. And they started uh, felling, dropping redwoods. And they built their own mill there. They built the train out to that spot. Uh, very industrious, hardworking uh, young men. And you, you can imagine back then, that was, I mean, you guys know what wilderness is. That was wilderness. So they're dropping trees, 
bigger than my house, so <laughs> bigger than all houses. And uh, they, uh, they built it up, but uh, when they were finished cutting these redwoods, uh, the U.S. government had deregulated the cutting of redwoods, so they needed something else to do. And they slowly made it around to growing grapes. They grew everything from A to Z, but uh, it finally was determined that best best thing to grow there, as for that part of California now, was grapes. And they got into the champagne business, brought another cousin over from uh, the old country who happened to be uh, knowledgeable in the making of methyl champenois, which is champagne, which is what they've done ever since. Same process for a hundred and, oh Lord, what is it, 138 years now, something like that. So it's crazy. It's a, it's a, it is a true uh, American immigrant, call it Wild West story. So lots of fun. That's an incredible story. I think to yeah. think that, that it goes back that far and how people have had to adjust for the times. We talk about adapting and overcoming right now, but that, that's, that's incredible, Todd. Uh, Todd Kennedy joining us right now here on NSN Daily. Uh, you know, when it comes to staples of the American Century Championship, you know, it's the celebrities but it's the sponsors who have been backing this NBC. We've been proud of covered that tournament for 25 years. Uh, but Corbell being a sponsor and being so generous with it, uh, you've got the best uh, skybox on 17, the party hole. You've got your little, the spray off arena that is usually there. It wasn't there. None of those were there this year. You know what, what I was really impressed with is the fact that Corbell said, we still want to donate to the boys and girls club, $12,500 to the Boys and Girls Club up there at Lake Tahoe. Uh, Todd, that just tells, tells me all I need to know about this company. Well, thank you, Brian. You, uh, you know, it, uh, this, this, this was a different year. You know, as I said, we, we started talking with NBC and American Century uh, very early on uh, as they were getting, you know, daily calls, John Miller and Gary Quinn and uh, everybody from uh, celebrities who, who really wanted to play and, we wanted to make it uh, about the charities and about what was going on. And, you know, as slowly time evolved, uh, you know, we gained more and more charities and more and more awareness. And obviously, obviously the money, the money was there. Uh, we just, we'll say we reappropriated it in different ways since uh, no one had to build any physical assets around the tournament and we didn't have all these fans to worry about. There was, there was, there was money on the table and we all chose to, uh, to disperse it and give it to various charities. And the, and the Tahoe Boys and Girls Club is, uh, is, is close to uh, Corbell. We've, we've donated and we've dealt with uh, that group before. They've been such a great group to deal with. And to be honest, you know, with the winery being a Northern California uh, winery, uh, the owner's family and a lot of our fan base and our employees, they, they vacation in Tahoe. They go, they've been going to Tahoe their whole life. Uh, I've been going there my whole life from Kentucky. Uh, it's, been a, uh, it's been a great place. We just love it there. And in anything we can do to help a community like that during a, a pandemic, uh, you know, we were, we're happy to do because it, it is a, it's like our second home. Yeah. A lot of perks when you go out there too uh, for this event. You get to meet these people that you only see on TV. Is there a person that you've met at one of these tournaments that you were just in awe of, or that was a kind of especially cool for you to be able to, you know, handshake somebody? Oh wow, Chris! I, uh, I mean, I could, I, I could literally just go down the list. Um, 
honest to God, uh, you know, like I said, I've been going there since 04. I've literally met every celebrity there. Um, I've had time with all of them. It's just been uh, several of them are personal friends. Uh, they're family friends. We've, we've been together so long now. We've gone to uh, each other's kids' weddings. Um, we go on vacations together. We ski together. We play golf together. We boat. Um, you know, it's just, I've seen so many of them in so many different ways. It's, uh, it's almost funny. I do, uh, I do remember, um, uh, one night, uh, I ran into vice president quail and he was literally just standing there in the, uh, in the casino at Harris. And I just come up the escalator and I, I was looking around, he was just standing there and, mm -hmm. You know, we just started talking and I was like, I'm, I'm like, there's got to be security around here. <laughs> He's just there and he was just, he was just so, he was just so happy to be around there enjoying himself. And, you know, it, he's led a, he's led a very different life compared to most of us. And, uh, and obviously to uh, the celebrities and the, the sports athletes, but we've had so much fun out there. There's so many different things. We've run long drive contest, hole in one contest. Uh, spray off contest. Uh, I can tell you, we're we're at the we're in the the planning room right now, trying to develop another type of contest to just uh, just get the fans excited. But uh, we we've had the best times. Uh, I remember uh, during one of our long drive contests, uh, one of the last time Anthony Anderson uh, was out there, he uh, he hit the ball. Uh, he shanked it. He wasn't exactly happy with it. He he snapped the driver over <laughs> the knee and tossed it. Well, he I guess he thought he was tossing it into the woods, and it was just over a hedge line. And and anyway, it it came flying back, <laughs> <laughs> and it was in half. And he was he was startled. Well, and uh, um, uh, Corey Nakatama, the uh, jockey. Mm -hmm. He was playing in the same contest and he says, he says, wait a minute. And he runs out and grabs it and it was perfect height for him. So he used it in the long trunk contest. So it was, just, it was just fun things like that. So, I mean, we have, like I said, since 2004, we've had some crazy things happen. Todd, one more thing before we let you go. Uh, this time around, it was more about the golf. And for the first time, it yeah. was about the golf. It wasn't about interacting with fans it wasn't about you know shooting buckets on 17 or completing passes it was about the golf and marty fish who had been a bridesmaid so many times uh goes out and, and did what he needed to do um how much how pleasing was that for you being able to watch this and go yeah i'm watching steph curry but i don't feel like i'm watching steph curry i feel like i'm watching somebody grind on the golf course yeah it's uh you know, normally, like you say, I'm, I'm out on 17, we're entertaining, we've got the TVs on, but it's live, it's crazy, it's beautiful. Uh, so I actually did, I, got, I, I watched a lot of golf this year, and you can, you can see it in these guys' eyes, and you can feel it, they're, they're, they're really trying. You know, they're trying as hard as they are in their, in their regular day-to-day -day sports, whatever they're doing, and it's a, uh, it is a grind. And you can, you can almost see the frustration when they're not getting what they want when they normally, you know, Steph can drain a 40 footer from uh, way beyond the three point line, but it's a little tougher on the, uh, on the putting green. So I love watching his dad play with him. That, that is fantastic. 
Patrick Mahomes this year was literally, literally like watching a kid in a candy shop. Right. Have a blast. <laughs> yeah, he definitely already said, he goes, I want to come back next year, and uh, we can't wait for it to be back at full speed, hopefully next year. We've squashed this whole thing, and we can come back with uh, the American Century at Edgewood Tahoe being uh, bigger than it's ever been. Todd Kennedy, appreciate your time and what Corbell does and what you guys do for our, for our community here. Thank you very much, Brian, Chris. I appreciate the time, and you guys have a, uh, have a great weekend, and uh, stay safe. All right, we'll have much more coming up on NSN Daily right after this. You know, here at uh, Nevada Sportsnet, we love lists. We love ranking things. And, uh, you know, it's not just a sports show. It's just a, a show about our area in northern Nevada in the 775. And uh, with the loss now of the awful, awful going away, I hope it's not permanent, Chris. You, you th somebody's got to step up and carry the badge here. Somebody's got to carry the bricks and, and, and you know, take the rock here and, and say, yeah, we want to buy the, the rights to the awful, awful. If you're if you're the nugget and sparks, don't you just have to do that? Come on. I think so. I mean, literally there were three hour long lines to go and get the burger over the last 10 days or so since they announced they were going to retire it. So if there's that kind of appetite for the awful, awful, you'd think somebody, like you said, would get the rights to it and be able to make it their own. Obviously it's been a difficult time over the last several months just because of the pandemic and people not going out to eat quite as much. But, um, you know, it's the most iconic food item in all of Reno. I've been around since 1963. Uh, Miles Bergen on KRNV did a uh, Knowing Nevada piece on it yesterday, which is on My News 4's website. Um, so the point of this article that I wrote was with the awful, awful being retired, uh, here are 21 local dishes that could be the next most iconic meal from Reno because I think the awful, awful definitely uh, took that title, but with the awful, awful not now being served, uh, what is Reno's most iconic food item? So it was a fun list to put together. And obviously when I put it out on Twitter, a lot of people said, uh, you're missing this one, you're missing this one, you're yeah. missing this one. So a lot of good items out there that uh, didn't make the list. But I'm, I'm proud of the list that I put together. I, I think it's a very extensive list, Chris. There are a couple of things that I was like, well, I think there's stuff that you know, all of us find something in the area and go, yeah, this would be on my, but yeah, when you had the mushroom raviolis from the El Dorado, definitely. Any sandwich at Deli Town. I'm sorry, mm -hmm. Deli Town is the best, I think is the best sandwich uh, spot in the area, you know, and it's, and it's in a gas station. Uh, the steakhouse at Western Village is, such, a, uh, is such, a, such an iconic place that so many people don't know about. JJ's Pie Company, I haven't had the Valdez. <laughs> I haven't had that. My favorite sandwich at JJ Pie's is the Hot Juan. It's basically the steak sandwich on like buttered and grilled French bread with uh, jalapeno with jalapeno slices in it, and it's or and pepperoncinis is ridiculous. But uh, the Chapino at Rapscallions, you could have gone the Atlantis Chapino, which is uh, absolutely uh, which is ridiculous as well. But uh, out of all of these, do you have a favorite one that is you'd be like, okay, that's my that's I don't want to say death row meal, but that's my. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, so somebody asked me, are we actually going to vote on this? So I'll try and put together a poll and put it on our website. I think if you had to pick one, I'd probably go with the El Dorado's mushroom raviolis. I feel like that item more than any of the 21 on my list, uh, the largest percentage of people in Reno have actually eaten, whether it's out at the Italian festival or going to La Strada or, or just going to an event at the Silver Legacy. A lot of times those are catered by the El Dorado and uh, mushroom raviolis are out there. Um, some other favorites my list. I put Louise Bass Corner's chorizo sandwich. Obviously, uh, you know, an iconic Basque restaurant. Been in Reno since 1967. 
Uh, I did Coney Island bars, all beef hot dog. Coney Island's been around since 1945. Uh, and then uh, Casali's Halfway Club's lasagna. Uh, Casali's has been around since 1937. So to make this list, I feel like you have to be around for like 30, 40, 50 years yeah. to really be a place that can, can be considered iconic. I did have some younger people kind of reach out and be like, well, what about this place? You know, it's only been open six or seven years. I don't know that it can actually make the list. Uh, for me, my, maybe my favorite is Zozo's, uh, uh, the pre-dinner bread. Uh, so the garlic that they serve before the meal, uh, that's not really a quote unquote meal, but uh, that garlic bread is good. There was one Yelp review that said, I'd give my firstborn for some more of their garlic bread. Uh, and, I, and then I noted, I, I probably wouldn't give up my kid for the garlic bread. <laughs> Zozo's. And it was just a fun list to put together because there are so many great locally owned restaurants who have been here for uh, 30, 40, 50 years. Um, and they just have these iconic meals that, uh, you know, people remember once they have it once. I don't think any of them touched the awful, awful though. When that thing went down, that they were canceling that, it was literally like trending on Twitter, like 60, 70,000 tweets about the awful, awful, even from people who were not around here. So, uh, yeah. many people have had that meal. And I think that's why you saw three hour uh, waits to be able to have it one more time before it actually closed down today. I mean, I've seen media from out of town, people that have will come to Reno to cover a game and somebody introduces them to the awful, awful, but there's a lot of media. They stay downtown and maybe cover a football game or cover a basketball game. They uh, indulge in the nightlife that is Reno and somebody who maybe as a local goes, Hey, you gotta go get an awful, awful at one in the morning. And they just go, Oh my God, this is incredible. Uh, Peg's glorified ham and eggs. I'm glad you put them on there. The huevos rancheros. That's not my flavor. I, I know people that, that, that swear by it. Their biscuits and gravy is iconic. I'm a biscuits and gravy sort of guy there. But um, I, got, I have to give the shout out to Pinocchio's. Pinocchio's hot and spicy pasta will do me every day of the week. I, that, that, that stuff cures cancer. That is so good. But you got to be able to take some heat. You got to be able to take some heat and it will reheat as leftovers later because you're not going to eat the whole thing uh, in a single serving. I usually don't try and eat the whole thing because I want to have leftovers the next day or the day after. But uh, great list, Chris, once again. Uh, go to the website, nevadasportsnet.com. Uh, to see the entire entire list that Chris put together. Yeah, it's funny. People want to vote on stuff like this. When you yeah. see a list, that's, that's kind of the instant reaction is, oh, I need to vote so I can make my, my favorite the number one. That's what people want to do. Yeah, and I, I, it would be interesting to see which one wins. Like I said, I think the Eldorado's mushroom raviolis might have the most street cred and might be the most famous. But, um, you know, a, a lot of these, you know, people love. I mean, there are burgers, uh, you know, uh, Jenna Holland, who writes for our website, one of our producers, wrote about beefies. And that's just a, an amazing story is what it, because it used to be Landrum's. Uh, and a lot of people were mentioning that Landrum's like chili quesadilla or chili omelet was like their favorite thing back in like the 30s, 40s and 50s. So uh, Juicy's Burger right on Wells, uh, also a great place. The only burger I put on the list was uh, from the Little Wall because the Little Wall is probably the oldest restaurant in town. It was uh, built in the 1940s, obviously right across from campus. So I went with their uh, world famous Jiffy Burger, which includes bacon and peanut butter, so very unique as well. So, um, you know, there's a lot of great, uh, you know, meals. And, you know, cool cool thing we've been doing on our website is the Takeout Tuesday and Hidden Eats features um, that kind of pop up with these different places you can eat. So uh, hopefully this inspired somebody to go out and get one of the items on the list. Coming up next here on NSN Daily, it's a weekly feature on Thursday's Bet or No Bet. Was the punishment for Joe Kelly justified for not being a member of the Astros. We'll have that debate next.
It is Thursday, and that means Bet or No Bet, brought to you by Joey Gilbert Law. We uh, pick out a topic. Sometimes it's on the field, off the field. Uh, would you bet on it or would you not bet on it? Um, I've got a feeling I know the answer that's going to come from Chris Murray on this, and I agree with him wholeheartedly. Um, Joe Kelly throws at Alex Bregman, uh, throws at Correa. Uh, one of them, he claimed uh, my control was bad. One was like, yeah, I was pretty much thrown at this guy. Um, Bet or no bet, eight-game suspension for not hitting somebody. There's a game show on late night that I, that I love. It's called Don't, and it's just stupid. It's just it's, it's funny human pet tricks. And it's like, don't do this, and you win money. Okay, don't be a, a batter, and you're going to get suspended for eight games. Chris, bet or no bet, this is too much. Um, so I'm going to go both. I'll give you my rationale for, for both. Okay. The don't bet version – um, eight games is clearly far too much. Uh, that prorated over 162 game season is about 22 games for not hitting somebody. So Joe Kelly got eight games for not hitting somebody and the entire Astros team got zero games for cheating for multiple years en route to winning a world series. Uh, we don't have a lot of consensus in the United States right now. Uh, but one thing I think we do have consensus on is everybody hates the Astros because the response to Joe Kelly's suspension was, this is ridiculous because look what you did MLB to the Astros uh, and look what you did to Joe Kelly, which, uh, yeah, he probably was throwing at Alex Bregman, but he didn't hit him. So yeah. you're judging on intent. Uh, and eight games is a historic length of time. You've never seen a relief pitcher uh, suspended eight games for not hitting somebody. So I think that will actually get measured down. He's going to appeal. It'll probably end up being three, maybe four games. On the bet side, me liking the eight-game suspension, Joe Kelly is not very good at pitching. Uh, he's – Control is horrible. He cost yeah. the Dodgers a trip to the World Series last year. So I actually don't mind him being suspended for eight games because I actually think it helps the Dodgers' odds of winning games because he won't go out there and blow games. Like, I know people think he was throwing at people uh, against the Astros, and he very well might have been. But literally, 11 of his first 16 pitches in the game were balls, and none of them were close. Like, this is a guy who, if he could actually harness his stuff, would be a Cy Young Award winner. But he can't. He walks everybody. He has no control. He throws 100 miles an hour. Uh, and even the throw at uh, to Carlos Correa was a curveball that was like 87 miles an hour. If he was trying to hit him, I think he would have went with the fastball. So uh, I hope that the suspension is upheld to help the Dodgers' chances of actually winning games. Um, but I don't like that he was suspended for that length of time, given the lack of punishment for the Astros. And also, the Astros were the ones who charged on the field to try and kind of fight the Dodgers. And it clearly says in the bylaws, that if you go onto the field, you get suspended if you get within six feet of a player because of COVID-19. And no Astros players were suspended for charging at the Dodgers and getting within six feet. Dusty Baker was fined as a result. So the MLB is not even upholding its own policy in terms of social distancing during quote-unquote brawls. The thing with me with Joe Kelly is that the second he left Boston, I think he left his brain on the East Coast <laughs> because he's been such a head case since he moved out here. Um, watching the first game of the first weekend when the Dodgers were playing. And, and I think his, out of his first, I think his first 13 pitches were all breaking balls. And, and the announcers were making comments. It was like there's first 13 or 14 or 15 pitches were all breaking balls. And they're like, this guy can throw a hundred miles an hour. Um, yeah. But then also the way that he walked off the field, uh, I, I don't, I don't think he deserved eight games, but at the same time, Baseball is a game where, you know, there's accountability in baseball. There, there are unwritten rules, and if you like them or not, sorry, it's the way the game is. Um, 
Madison Bumgarner wouldn't have walked off the mound, pouty face, kind of getting to his dugout as fast as possible. Mad Bum would have swung at somebody. And I'm not saying that just from a, I'm a Giants fan. He used to be with Giants. He's just that type of guy. Kelly wanted to get behind half a dozen teammates as quickly as possibly could. I don't blame him because he weighs 140 pounds. But <laughs> he's been in some fights, though. Like he he's, was. He's a scrapper. But Yeah, I, I, he, he you're right about him. Uh, I don't want to say he's not all mentally there. I think he's even admitted that once he takes them out, he kind of turns psychotic. And that's yeah. kind of his way for playing in the major leagues is that he seems like a very nice and jovial guy off the field. But when right. he on the field yeah he's a completely different personality he turns into like a wwe heel uh and yeah he did taunt with his pouty face and with saying a couple of comments but he had also been spiked by an astros player trying to cover first base a couple of hours before and dusty baker told him to get the bleep back on the mound um so there there's going to be rough feelings between these two forever because the Dodgers, yeah. like the Astros, cheated them out of a World Series in a series that went seven games, uh, that went to two extra innings, that both of those games the Astros ended up winning. Um, you know, who knows if a trash can blow here or a whistle there changes that series forever. So, uh, yeah, usually if you go back 10 years from, uh, you know, go, uh, teams were allowed to kind of uh, do the unwritten rules and, and control things out on the field, and MLB didn't get involved. Um, but MLB has taken a stance during this season that you will not throw at the Astros or you're going to get a severe suspension. And I largely agree with not throwing at people because of the yeah. danger of doing so. Um, I just feel like everyone feels like this is a bit of a unique situation given the backstory between the two. I mean, you have to think, too. Joe Kelly broke one of his own windows trying to develop another pitch in the offseason. <laughs> yeah, uh, the control is not all there. But uh, uh, either way, it's been entertaining, entertaining, to say the least, when it comes to Major League Baseball. Got up next here on NSN Daily. Reno 1868 finally gets in the win column. We'll recap that as we wrap up the show coming up after the break. I want to thank Todd Kennedy for coming on the show today. Reno 1868, Chris, big back, uh, bounce back win last night. Yeah, Cristiano Francois uh, scores two goals. Reno wins 4-1 at Portland. Uh, never lost to Portland in their history and right back up to the top of the Group A standing. So good Reno. Yep, of course, you'll be able to see all of those games televised home and away right here on Nevada Sportsnet. Uh, we're uh, very proud to be teaming up with Reno 1868 this season to bring you live soccer. For Anthony Resnick, directing behind the scenes, I'm Brian Samudio with Chris Murray. We will see you on Friday.